We're privileged this morning to be able to hear from our summer pastoral intern, John Howe. I think it's appropriate for me to give you a little bit of background as to why we do this periodically and to John as well. There are three things that we do week in and week out around here at First Family Church. Uh, They begin with this letter C and then, of course, G and S. And if you've been here long at all, you know what they are. Three things we do every week. What are they? We celebrate, grow, and serve. That's kind of our mission. We are committed to making disciples of Christ who celebrate, grow, and serve for the glory of God. And that's kind of what's known, what you see, what you kind of always see printed and said. But what's underneath that is really a why. Like, why do we do that? And it's really what we call our vision. And from the very beginning, our vision has been to be a, an environment that is ready to reproduce, a multiplying environment. And so God has just enabled us by his grace to plant several churches, to send several people to the mission field, because our heartbeat is to be a multiplying environment. In any way that God would have us multiply to reproduce ourselves, uh, that's just kind of the, the framework here in all things, a reproducing environment. You don't hear that a lot. You see it happen. We've planted about five churches here locally, one internationally. We've sent several couples. What you hear mainly is celebrate, grow, serve, and you, you grin, you know that. But underneath that is this heartbeat to to have God just replicate what he's doing wherever and whenever he's the author, we're just the workers. One of the ways we do that is as God brings people in our path uh, from within our church or outside of our church to partner with them and either help them plant or help them, um, you know, send them. And so John has been in our church for years. He was in our youth group and uh, his, his desire began to kind of flourish. Uh, he left for Bethlehem College I said, John, if you're going to Bethlehem College to possibly study ministry, and we're not sure yet how God's going to lead him. This is not a, I'm not pigeonholing him here at all. But I said, give me every one of your summers. He said, that's a deal. So every summer, John has come back. He's been an intern here. But for the previous three, really with our youth ministry and kind of in a part-time way, this summer, I said, John, I want you to come up here with me and we're going to kind of get our hands around you pastorally. I want to have you do this full-time. And so for, for 10 weeks this summer in a full-time way, he's been interning with us and We've been spending a lot of time together and on calls and visits and appointments and just in the study of the word and kind of how church works, those kind of things. And man, he's been a blessing to me. Part of that this summer is his speaking here twice. And this is his first week this summer. He'll speak later in August. And this is his first time to speak to you at all. Though he grew up here and though he knows you, this is his first time in this role. And this is your first time to see him in that role. And I want to guarantee you something. You are in for a magnificent treat. Um, God's really given John, I think, a, a beautiful gifting. And so I'm excited to have you here from someone that has kind of grown up here and is part of this multiplying culture. He, for two years, was part of a program we called E3, which was a kind of a learning to preach program. He did one of those in his gap year, in fact. Uh, now he's had a whole lot better training about Bethlehem, I'm sure. So we're going to get to reap from that. But I'm just so excited this morning to let you hear from John, our summer pastoral intern. And I know you'll be blessed. You'll hear the word. You'll be encouraged. God will massage your heart. And help me this morning breathe on the potential of fire in his life, will you, by welcoming him to the pulpit? So, John, come preach for us. Have a great time, man. Well, good morning. Uh, it is a great honor and a privilege to be with you all today and to investigate with you the truth of God's word as found in his scripture. Now today we're going to be looking at Genesis 8 
verse 1. That's where our divine pivot is going to be. And we're going to look at a but God in the story of Noah and the flood. Now, before we do that, I have a quick confession to make. I have a terrible memory. You see, a couple years ago when I started this thing we call college, uh, God graced me with these very interesting people called roommates. And although I myself and they are human and we can sometimes have a little friction and get on each other's nerves, they have actually become some of the most dear friends to me on the planet. And I love them wholeheartedly. So on some random Saturday, I think it was around 9 a.m., I've been up for a couple of hours and finishing breakfast, and my roommate Jesse walks out of the shower dressed, ready to go off to work. I say, Jesse, hey, how you doing? Got any big plans today? He says, no, just work. Why do you ask? And I inform him that our closet is in dire straits and that any normal person would have taken care of it two years ago, and we need to do something about it. And so he agrees to, after work, to come and help me out. Now, as all good millennials do, as you're finishing breakfast, you check Facebook. And with horror, I realize that the human being I have plans to do chores with that day is, yes, as of today, one year older than he was the day before. So, Jesse didn't really hold it against me that I missed his birthday. In fact, I made a mad dash to the store to try to salvage the situation with a card or some type of cake. But although it hurts that you and I might be forgotten a bit by our loved ones and friends, some of you perhaps right now are maybe feeling forgotten by God. You look at what's going on in the world and see these different types of circumstances, or maybe what's even going on in your own heart with sins you're struggling with or relationships that aren't going well, and you feel like God has overlooked something, like it's not supposed to be this way, that he made a mistake or has simply forgotten about you. Now, our divine pivot is going to address exactly that today. Turn with me now to Genesis 8.1, and we'll look at the passage. The Bible tells us that, But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth, and the waters subsided. Now, from this very little portion of Scripture, I want to try to grasp a simple and yet profound truth about our God. And it is this, that he never forgets to remember. In order to try to appreciate this a little bit more with you folks, I want to do three things today. First, I want to look at how God actually remembers things and what it means for him to know anything at all compared to our knowledge. Secondly, I want to see what this means for Noah in the story of the flood in his time. And lastly, we'll see what kind of implications this has for us on our lives. So, what exactly does God's ability to remember or know things imply, and how is it different from our own? Well, first off, we are finite human beings. We're limited by space and time, and your brain can only retain so much information. But God is not like that. He does not grow faint or grow weary or get tired or have any limits on capacities. So he essentially has an unlimited amount of knowledge. He, in the strictest sense of the term, knows 
everything. But it's not just that he knows everything. It's that he knows everything exhaustively. You see, you folks might know something really well, but you can't actually know everything about anything. When I first started studying the Bible for myself a couple years ago, I was driven by questions I had, and I wanted answers to these questions. And I got some answers through the help of people and God and just a lot of time looking through things. Um, and as I studied more and got those answers, those answers led me to other questions. And now, heading into my senior year at Bible college, I can tell you that I almost know next to nothing. My awareness of my ignorance has grown exponentially in the past few years. So essentially, the more you know, the more you know how little you actually do know. But God is not limited by those constraints. He has an exhaustive knowledge of everything that he knows. And in addition to this, God is also perfectly conscious of all things at all times. Now think about this. My computer has to load some things. And my brain needs coffee just to stay awake and think about certain things. But God is not like that. He is perfectly conscious of all things at all times. In fact, when Jesus was exhorting his disciples not to worry, he told them that are not two sparrows sold for a penny, meaning they're not worth very much. And yet, not one of these birds will fall to the ground apart from your father's consent. A quick Google search will show you that there's between 10 and 18,000 different species of bird on this planet. And there are over 200 billion, with a B, individual birds alive today. And your Heavenly Father is perfectly conscious and knowledgeable of every little fledgling and every apex predator that flies in the sky today and falls to the ground tomorrow. So God's memory and knowledge means much more than just a perfect, accurate, mathematical, abstract account of things. It actually means that he cares about the specific individual parts of his creation. In fact, in the Old Testament, when God is said to remember someone, it often implies that he is moving toward that person in a divine act of love. In Genesis 19, God destroys the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, but the text tells us that he remembered Abraham and brought Lot, Abraham's nephew, out of the city. In Genesis chapter 30, we are told that God remembered Rachel and opened her womb and gave her a child. In Exodus chapter 2, we are told that God sees his people suffering in the land of Egypt under slavery and that God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And God eventually brought them out of that terrible circumstance. So church, take this to heart and be comforted by the fact that God not only knows all things perfectly, but cares for the specific people and individuals in his creation like you or me. Despite what your circumstances feel like, we are not forgotten or overlooked because God never forgets to remember. Now, that's kind of a conceptual like understanding of what it means for God to know and remember things. But what about Noah? What does it technically mean for God to remember Noah in the story of the flood and the Bible as a whole? Well, first off, recall what's happening. Genesis with me. Chapter 1, 
God creates this planet, and he says that everything in it is good, good, good. And then he comes to man, and we are told that God made man in his own image. Now, there's a lot that could be said about what it means for us to be made in his image, but just think simply with me for a second about what an image is. An image's purpose is to image. It reflects. It projects something about the thing it is a picture of. We as human beings make statues or draw paintings and pictures and take pictures of things that we think are noteworthy and valuable. And all those representatives aren't the thing itself. They reflect to and point and say something about the thing in which it images. And that's actually what you guys are made to do. You're not God. You're very different from him. But in small, limited ways, you are to be a part of a vast picture that represents and says something about the glory and majesty of our creator. Now, humans, they don't go too far in achieving this goal. By the third chapter of Genesis, they have failed at their one job, rebelled against their creator, uh, are hiding from him, and blame shifting. By chapter four, they come to blows, and we read the story of the first murderer. And by chapter six, we begin reading terrible things like this. Genesis chapter six, in verse five, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart were only on evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heaven, for I am sorry that I have made them. Wow. Is that not a hard pill to swallow? God creates a world in which everything is good, good, good. In just a few short pages, it is desperately wicked beyond hope. And it is so bad that our Lord is even said to regret the situation, that he is sorry that he has made man on the earth. And listen to the redundancy of the text. Every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only on evil continually. Now, what gives here? You know, I thought God was perfect. I thought he didn't make mistakes. And here the text is telling us that God regrets having made human beings. Well, first off, just as our memory is similar to, but completely different than in God's. So also is God's grief similar to, but very different than our own. Listen to what the prophet Isaiah says. For I am God and there is no one like me, declaring the end from the beginning, from ancient times, things not yet done, saying my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. In other words, God does not have a plan B. Nothing surprises him or catches him off guard. He does not make mistakes. And in fact, the book of Genesis ends by the scripture telling us that although man intends things for evil, God intends them for good. Thus, God's regret doesn't imply a mistake or a misstep 
on his part. It is simply a way for the scriptures to express in tangible language that you and I will understand how sin grieves the heart of God. And this is important for us to understand because I don't know about you, but sometimes in my mind, I treat sin as just breaking the rules. You know, I did something wrong. I went against this moral or ethical code, and that is true. But sin is much more than that. You see, sin is sin because it grieves and it offends and it hurts a person, God himself, who just loves you and wants what's best for you. Now, that's a little bit about what it means for God to regret. But let's go back to the story of Noah and the flood. Chapter 6, the world's in shambles, people are desperately wicked, and God promises to wipe out the entire human race. But remember... God never forgets to remember. In Genesis 6, verse 8, we read this, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Now, what are we to make of that? The whole world is sentenced to a watery grave because they are desperately wicked, but Noah somehow finds favor in God's sight. Is he the only one on the planet that got it, that understood, that was good enough or righteous enough? Had he not sinned like the rest of these people? Well, you see, in the ancient times, kings and people of high authority were said to have favor on some lowly or destitute person. A perfect example is in the book of Ruth. Ruth in Israel is both a widow and a foreigner, and she comes and gleans in the field of a wealthy landowner named Boaz. Now, the text tells us that Ruth found favor in the eyes of Boaz, and Boaz makes sure that she is protected and well cared for. Now, this widow and alien didn't necessarily do anything to merit or earn or twist the arm of Boaz. Boaz was just a good guy who had a gracious heart and wanted to help her out. And that's what God is doing here for Noah. Noah didn't necessarily earn or make God save him. God is simply just pouring out his grace upon this man. In addition to this, the book of Hebrews tells us that by faith, Noah, being warned of God concerning events unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became the heir of righteousness that comes by faith. Notice what the text says there. He became the heir of righteousness that comes by faith. This is not a works-based salvation. He wasn't saved because he was good enough. He was saved because he simply believed what this God was telling him and counted him as a good, gracious God who would fulfill his word. Now, even though faith isn't a work that we do to merit or earn God's favor, that doesn't necessarily make it easy or painless on our part. I mean... Just think about what this must have been like for Noah. The text tells us that the world is wicked, corrupt, and violent. And the Bible doesn't give us really any concrete examples of what that looked like in Noah's time, but it does let us know this. Noah was alone. There is no evidence in the text to suggest that anyone other than Noah and his immediate family would have been sympathetic to his message or cause. Rather, it seems that everyone on the planet and their mother would have been staunchly opposed to what Noah was doing. And now think about what his conversations with his neighbors 
must have been like. I can just imagine someone walking up and being like, oh, hey, Noah, I uh, see you're still working on that pet project of yours, uh, that boat there. I mean, how long have you been doing that? For 20, 30-some years now? And you know, since you heard the voice in the wind telling you just to build this boat miles away from land. But I guess that's not a problem. There's going to be water falling from the sky. Oh, and what about those animals? Are they just supposed to show up in a couple of decades when you're done? Or do you and the boys have a lot of uh, rounding up you got to do? Now, imagine a different type of neighbor, someone sounding a lot like this. Hey, Noah, I know that you're worried about this prophecy, and I know that you just want to keep your family safe, but you shouldn't throw your life away just listening to these voices in your head. I mean, you have skills, Noah. You're a good craftsman, and you could use this to help people in the real world, let alone make a career out of it. I mean, our king would pay you handsomely if you would come and work on some of our temples. You know, Noah, this would be different if it just affected you, but it doesn't. I mean, think about your kids. Do you really want their only memory of dad to be, we helped him build a boat for a flood that never came? Now, maybe some of you are feeling the weight of temptations like that. Um, perhaps people laugh at and malign you for your Christian faith or think that you're just throwing your life away for some hoax or ruse. And although there's a lot that could be said about dealing with that type of temptation, I just want to give you this today. Don't quit. Noah did not quit. Noah was faithful to do the hot daily work of cutting down trees, carving up logs, and building this seemingly pointless boat because he knew that no matter what was happening and no matter what people were saying about him, God would not forget him because God is faithful. God was faithful to Noah, and he'll be faithful to you too today as well. Now, God is no liar. He is faithful and even though it had been many years since Noah began to build the ark, the flood came surely as the sun rises. Look with me at Genesis 7, just right above our passage. Genesis 7, verse 19, the Bible says this, that the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed over the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep, and all Flesh died that moved on the earth. Birds and livestock and swarming creatures that swarm on the earth and mankind and everything on the dry land that had the breath of life died. Now, I don't know what your mind's eye sees. You're probably acquainted with the children's stories on the subject matter. I mean, this picture might sound familiar to you. A beautiful, bright blue sky with the sun shining through the clouds on a picturesque rainbow that's hanging over the entire scene. And in the waters, the dolphins splash and play as Noah, with his smiling face of animal companions, floats safely over the waters. Now, I don't want to condemn that as just outright bad and wrong. I think it's good and shows something about God's salvation and mercy to Noah. But that picture alone doesn't communicate what is actually happening in the flood as a whole. Consider with me another picture I saw this week. 
by a 19th century French artist named Gustave Doré. And in this etching, there is no arc. All that can be seen is a dark body of angry water with one rock protruding out from the middle of it. And on this rock are three terrified individuals enduring their last moments on this planet right next to an angry, hungry tiger. Now, that's hard to stomach, but it does tell us something, that the flood, first and foremost, is not primarily a playful event. In fact, it's a very real and terrifying demonstration of God's wrath on mankind. Now, sadly, this hard reset of the planet did not eradicate sin forever. You see, these righteous people that were saved on the ark fall into sin very quickly after the story is over. Noah is seen drunken in just a chapter after the flood is over. His descendants are given the command to spread out over the earth, but instead they rebel against God, congregate together, and try to make a name for themselves by building a tower. Instead of doing what God wants them to do and be his image bearers and make his name great. Now, I don't have to tell you this, but today isn't really all that different. Our present hour sings the sad same tune. Whether you look at the pages of history or scroll through your Facebook feed, you can see that the modern human experience is one in which selfish people violently try to make themselves their own God. And when the New Testament refers to the story of Noah and the flood, it doesn't necessarily do so to try to learn from the mistakes of the past. It actually sees them as a picture and a pointer of things to come. Listen to these words from our Lord Jesus. He says, For as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and they were all unaware and the flood came and swept them all away. So it will be with the coming of the Son of Man. Now, I can remember when my brother got married a couple of years ago. It was an incredibly happy day and those naive people back then had never even heard or knew what a pandemic was and so they got to enjoy the entire thing free of any restraint of social distancing. Now, as the reception was going on and the whole day was playing out and people were rocking out on the dance floor, I decided to hang back, eat some cake, and as I was watching the whole thing play out, this text popped into my mind. And for a moment, I thought of all the pain and suffering and hardship that is going on in the world. And I was reminded that, as it was in the days of Noah, they were all unaware. And the flood came, and it swept them all away. And you see, folks, those words about the intentions of man's heart being only evil continually were not just meant for those people back then. They're for us today. The Bible tells us that all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. So I ask you, uh, with the wickedness that's in our own hearts and the judgment 
that's coming. I mean, what are we supposed to do about it? Make no mistake about it, just as the flood tore through this planet in order to wipe away the wickedness of sin, so Christ, when he comes again, will do the very same thing, and he will finish the job this time. And when he comes, he will not spare any transgressor. And that includes the small evils you and I do every day. Well, that's not the end of the story. And thank God that there's a but God in our passage because God remembered Noah. And the story does not end with the flood. Now, just as Noah and his family were saved by faith, by God, so also you and yours can be saved by faith in Christ and what he has done for us on the cross. And just as there was only one ark that could save Noah and his family, so also there is only one Christ that can save you and yours. Now notice what God is doing. He is not necessarily going to take you out and pull you and free you from all your immediate circumstances and problems, but rather he's forgiving you of your sins. He's letting you go free. And now, instead of fearing that coming day of judgment, you can rather have hope and anticipate the return of our Lord, in which he will cleanse this entire planet from all wrong, set everything right, and you will get to enjoy an eternity with him singing his praises. Now, that's a little bit about what the story means for Noah. But what about for us today? Well, first, in addition to having this amazing grace and this awesome hope, I think the story of Noah should be a call to action for us. You see, the apostle Peter in his second epistle calls Noah a herald of righteousness. And that's actually what you and I should be today. We should be willing to be that crazy neighbor building a boat when there's not a cloud in the sky. We need at work or school or in the backyard or at the dinner table, be looking for people to warn and offering them the amazing grace that Jesus Christ has bought for us on the cross. And secondly, I want you guys to be able to rest in the remembrance of God. You know, I don't know what you're going through, but perhaps right now feels a bit like you're living in the time of Noah. Everything around you seems very violent. You see death and suffering and the sinfulness of mankind is apparent to you. And perhaps life just isn't going the way you envisioned it. Maybe certain relationships haven't worked out or maybe you just feel stuck in the routineness of a everyday mundane life. Now, I can't promise you that he's going to fix all those circumstances and he might not. But what I can say is that if you're trusting in Christ for your salvation, you can know beyond a shadow of a doubt that whatever is going on around you, God has not forgotten you. So church, while we endure this cruel earth and wait for the second coming of our Lord, remember the divine pivot. God did not forget Noah, and God will not forget you either because God never forgets to remember. We hope you enjoyed today's message. For more messages, visit firstfamily.church forward slash sermons or subscribe to our podcast feed. Thanks for listening.